Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Letters are powerful. There are many letters written to the church. Uh, Most of the back half of the New Testament is essentially letters written to the church. But we're just going to focus on on seven letters, or actually we're going to focus on five of the seven letters that are written uh, to some churches in Asia Minor, recorded in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. They're powerful letters. They're powerful letters that have been preserved through the generations and still speak to the church today. Letters are powerful. I've preserved some letters of my own. Letters that I found in my garage a little while back that have been written to me. And they say something about me and they say something about the person that's written them. This one is actually eight pages long. This person's a long letter writer. Lots to say. She writes like this, 23rd of the 4th, 1992. She writes, My dearest darling Jay, I love you so much. I've never met another guy like you. You are so sensitive and caring and kind. I love your bluey-green eyes and your sweet, sweet lips. I'll just miss the next paragraph. She must have been away somewhere when she wrote this. And she says, I love you, my darling. I'm missing you so much. I can't wait to see you and for you to hold me in your strong, loving arms. You look so good in your jeans and blue shirt on Sunday. You should wear that more often. From your little honey bunny, Susan. She wrote me a lot of letters expressing her undying love to me. And because I knew she loved me and I loved her, I'm fully obedient to her. I've been reading, wearing jeans and blue shirts every Sunday for the next 30 years. She wanted me to know without a shadow of a doubt that she loved me. And I found a bunch of letters like that that kind of were all along the same lines. You know, I just love you, miss you. I found some other letters. She also wrote some strongly worded letters that did express love, but said some pretty tough things to me. This one's from the 29th of the 12th, 1992. She wanted me to know that my behavior wasn't appropriate for someone that claimed to love her back. And she didn't pull any punches. She let me have it. This is how she starts. Jason Scott Ellsmore. (laughs) No more dearest darling Jay. You can be such a pig sometimes. (laughs) I can't believe that you would tell me that you love me and then treat me the way that you did on Friday. You really hurt me. It goes on and on and on. But you don't need to hear about my inadequacies. And so I categorized her letters into different types. Letters that told me just how much she loved me, couldn't wait to see me again. 
and letters that told me how much she loved me, but I needed to improve my behaviour. <laughs> One was slightly bigger than the other. But letters also tell us something about the person that's writing. This one is actually from the 30th of October, 1990, all right? I can't wait for you to finish school soon. It will be great to be able to go out on school nights and not worry about you having to do homework. And I won't have to drive around with a guy in a school uniform and worry about my friends from university seeing me with a schoolboy. Letters reveal something about the person receiving the letter or also something about the person writing the letter. I'm not sure if you've realised this before, if this is a new revelation for you, but Susan's older than me. I was still in school when we were going out and she was in university. H have you ever heard that before? Oh, you have. <laughs> I found a letter right at the bottom in this little, uh, cute little envelope, and on the front of it, it was addressed to the biggest spunk in the world. And I thought, that's definitely going in the I love you so much pile. I better read this one to the end. Uh, I started reading it, and I actually won't read it to you today, not because I'm worried about embarrassing Susan, but at the end it said, love from Jenny. And I've kept the letter for 30 years. <laughs> but I got no idea who Jenny is. <laughs> Apparently she fancied me in 1992. And so I started another pile as I'm going through the letters called Love Letters from Girls Other Than Susan. <laughs> it's the only one. And I got no idea who she is. Right <laughs> Come on, I've kept it for 30 years. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta be encouraged someone else loves me. <laughs> I don't know about you, I don't know if you've got a crazy box of love letters in your uh, garage or not, but letters are powerful. And that's why we preserve letters, because they speak something important to us about what was going on in our heart back then. They speak something about what's shaped the future. And so we preserve letters. And these letters we're going to read over these next five weeks have been preserved since about the year 90 or 95, somewhere around that time. Been preserved for nearly 2,000 years. And they're letters similar to uh, those letters I read out. They're letters of love. They're letters of correction. They're, they're letters of counsel. They're letters of, I love you, but you need to change this behavior. And they're, they're letters that have been preserved because they're very powerful through every generation. These letters that are being preserved in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that there's five key things. We're only gonna, there's seven letters. We're only going to look at five of them over the next five weeks. But there's five key things that you're going to find in every letter. I want to encourage you to look for them as we read them together. Firstly, there is revelation about the writer. There's revelation 
about the power and the authority, the nature of Jesus. Each of the letters begins with a description, you know, of who Jesus is. In every letter, there's a revelation from Jesus about the church in the city. We see that he knows in each of these letters, we see that he knows intricately the political, geographical, and spiritual nature of the city. Nothing is blinded from him. There's nothing that he doesn't see. He sees into the very heart of the church, and he sees into the culture of a city. And there's an encouragement from Jesus, or there's a, there's a recognition of the, the great things that the church has done. And he encourages the church. In nearly all of the letters, there's, there's kind of one or two that might miss out on anything particularly encouraging, but, but he encourages them on the things that they've done to shine a light for the gospel. He encourages, he's seen everything that they've done. But then there's also a rebuke. He, he talks about his love for the church but in nearly all, in fact, all but one, there is a rebuke. They're saying, if you really love me, there needs to be a change of behavior. And then there's a reminder that there is a reward. There's a reminder that if you will listen, if you will obey, if you will actually do what I'm asking you to do, there will be a reward that comes. Your light he says, yeah, the light that you hold in the city, as you hold the light of the gospel, as you hold the light of Christ in the city, there will be victory over the darkness. Your light will not go out. So each of these letters, I want you to look for the revelation of Jesus. What does it tell us about Jesus? Revelation from Jesus. You know, what does it tell us that Jesus actually sees into the heart of our church? He sees the, the culture. There's a rebuke that in some ways the city has actually shaped us. The culture of the city has shaped us rather than the Word of God. And we need to hear that rebuke uh, today. There's an encouragement that he, he, he sees everything that we do. And there's a reminder that there's a reward that's coming. If you'll listen, you'll, you'll obey you'll repent. Written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle John in a very difficult time in church history. This is what it says, Revelation. Just going to read the first one today. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that holds your church together. I'm the one that gives you light to shine into the community. These seven lampstands are seven churches. And he's saying, I've given you this light. I've given you the light of the gospel, and I don't want it to go out. He says, these are my words. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. As Jesus dictates this letter to the church, he begins by encouraging them. I see your deeds. I see your hard work. I see your perseverance. So I just want to encourage you today. Jesus commends you for your hard work. Jesus commends you for your hard work. Everything that you've ever done to serve the Lord Jesus, he sees it. Nothing has gone unnoticed from him. Every time you've turned up when you didn't really feel like it. Every time you sacrificed when it hurt a little bit. You know, every time, you know, you, you, you kind of, you needed to actually dig deep within you 
to serve those around you and you thought that nobody noticed your efforts, Jesus saw it and he noticed and he commends you for it. Now you've got to understand who it is that's commending you for your hard work. You know, it's, it's the one that actually put the sun in its place, the one that threw stars into space. You know, the, the, the one that actually saved an entire nation from slavery by parting the Red Sea. The one that stepped down from the glory of heaven and, and, and walked amongst broken humanity. And, and he did the great work, the hard work of serving the poor, feeding the hungry, welcoming the lonely, you know, caring for the broken. And he made the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one that laid down his life for all of mankind. He went to a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. He made the ultimate sacrifice. It's this God who sees your hard work and he commends you for it. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to encourage you today. Every late night youth group meeting you've invested in to the next generation. Every early morning Music practice, when you got here and it's starting to get cold, and you, but you wanted the people to worship and you turned up early. Every food parcel that got packed in that care center, every time you reached out with love in that op shop, you know, every time you hosted people in your home and you opened the word together in your life group, every time you served someone in that coffee shop, every time you welcomed somebody through these doors, every time you thought nobody noticed, you're just serving again. I want to encourage you today. Jesus saw it every time. And he commends you for your hard work. He commends you. Never been in vain. It says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Jesus commends you for your hard work and Jesus commends you for persevering through hardship. He says this, he says, you've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and you've not grown weary and I commend you for it. You know, sometimes people think that if we're really in the will of God and we're fulfilling the call of God, that life should be easy. If we're really in the center of God's will, that life should be easy. And if for a season life is not easy, things don't go according to plan, and it's painful, and it hurts, and there's sacrifice, and you can't see you know, just a, a light at the end of the tunnel. You can't see everything turning out rosy anytime real quickly. A lot of people begin to think that maybe I've stepped out of the will of God and that's why life is hard. You know, maybe I've walked away from the ways of God and that's why life is hard. I'm actually not sure where you get that from. It's not in the Bible. Now think about the Apostle Paul, who from the moment on that Damascus road was just completely focused, completely devoted 
you know, to, to following Jesus, to fulfilling the will of God, to walking in the ways of God. It's written half of our New Testament, planted all of, you know, most of these churches that, you know, we're going to read about over these next few weeks. And, and yet he says, I've been flogged. I've been stoned. I've been driven out of town. I've been chained up. I've been imprisoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been without food. I've been hungry. And yet I'm content in all circumstances, whether I've got plenty or not much. Jesus himself said, in this world, in this world, say it with me, in this world you will have, come on, say it again, in this world you will have, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. I'm going to give you a spirit of overcoming to get through trouble. I'm going to give you a reward where one day there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more pain when I come again. But right now, when you're walking in the will of God, when you're standing in the center of God's will and you're serving God, there will be times of trouble. There'll be times of hardship. But he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise he made. When you walk through those times, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so he's, he's looking at this church that he has never left and he has never forsaken. And he commends them for their hard work. And he commends them for their perseverance. He's seen it hasn't been easy. This was not an easy time to be a follower of Jesus. They've gone through a time of persecution under Emperor Nero that was devastating. They're either in or they're about you know, to walk through a time under Emperor Domitian. Where, where the whole empire had to bow down and declare that Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't declare that Caesar is Lord because you believed in all of your heart that Jesus was Lord, then you were persecuted. You, you lost freedoms, you lost businesses, you lost homes. Some people lost their lives. John himself is writing this letter. He would not stop talking about Jesus. So they says they tried to kill him, but they couldn't. They dipped him in burning hot oil and pulled him back out, and he was still alive, and he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. And so they sent him to an island because they couldn't kill him. But he walked through hardship. Many of us in this room have walked through some hardship. Whether it's been the last two years of loss of freedom, loss of job, being isolated from family and community. One of the most painful things I've watched is this people couldn't have their family together at funerals, don't get that chance back. People couldn't have their family together at weddings. And stuff that's got nothing to do with COVID. Just been times of hardship. Life has been tough. Life has been tough physically. Life has been tough financially. Life's been tough relationally. Can I just say today, if that's your testimony right now, don't presume that it's happening because you stepped out of the will of God. 
Now, you might look back and go, I made a dumb decision, and I'm reaping the consequences. I'm reaping what I've sown, and that might be true sometimes. But there's other things, there's other hardships we walk through where it's got nothing to do with you reaping what you've sown. It might be you're reaping what others have sown, the way others have sinned against you, or it might be just the case of living in a fallen world. And what Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the encouragement. I'll give you the comfort, the need. You need to walk through that season. They were working hard for Jesus. They persevered through hardship for Jesus. And they, Jesus also commends them for preserving the gospel. He says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them to be false. Then right at the end of the letter, he says, you also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, he commended them for their hard work. He commended them for persevering through hardship, and he commended them for preserving the gospel. And can I just say this is really important in our season today? I see far too many churches when things are going wrong, when things are tough, they're actually watering down the gospel. They're actually losing faith in the simplicity and the power of the gospel of Jesus as a power for salvation for everybody who believes and makes an eternal difference to our lives. What, what, what was happening back then, people coming in and wanting to taint the gospel is still happening today. That's why these letters written 2,000 years ago speak to churches back then. Jesus knew what was going on, but it speaks to churches throughout the generation. And he says, you haven't let it happen. He says to the church in Ephesus, you've held on to the truth. You've held on to the gospel, and I commend you for it. He says, you also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Notice he doesn't say, you hate the Nicolaitans. He says, you hate their practices. You hate their works. You hate their deeds. You hate what they were about. You see, Nicolaitans, they kind of sound evil, don't they? The evil Nicolaitans. Well, they were. You know, they... Uh, in, in Ephesus, there was this huge temple built to, to Diana, who was a, a god of fertility, a sex god. And they would worship her by sacrificing all of this meat to, uh, to, this, to this idol. And then they would have these orgies where they just sleep with whoever they wanted to and enjoy their sexual fantasies. And what the Nicolaitans were saying is, yes, put your faith in Jesus, but then eat whatever you want and sleep with whoever you want. doesn't matter. Just be part of the culture. Be part of what's going on. And the church in Ephesus said, no. No, that's not the heart of God. That's not what the Scriptures tell us. That's not what Jesus showed us and modeled for us. And they rejected that kind of teaching. And they held on to the truth. And Jesus commends them for it. I believe every time, I believe there's there's going to be some testing times ahead for the church. We're going to have to hold on to the truth. We're going to have to preserve the gospel. And Jesus commends you for it. It's an encouraging letter. It says you're working hard for Jesus. You've persevered through hardship for me and you've preserved the gospel but then Jesus says in verse 4 
yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, 25 years earlier, another letter was written to the church in Ephesus, it's the, what we now call the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote it about, about 20, don't know, not exactly, but about 25 years earlier than this. And not long after they'd begun, you know, the church was in its infancy, and Paul's writing to them, saying, I long to be with you again. I'm hearing great stories. And 25 years earlier, Paul commended them, commended them for their great faith and their deep love for people. He commended them. He says, I'm hearing great stories of your deep love for God and your deep love for people. But 25 years later, they're now getting older as a church. They've stepped out of their infancy. And Jesus writes another letter to this, uh, this, this church, this, this church in a really tough city. And he says, look, I commend you for your hard work. I commend you for persevering through hardship. I commend you for holding on to the truth. But you've lost your love. You've forsaken your first love. You don't love me and you don't love people the way you used to. Your passionate loves become a lifeless ritual. They're not giving up on Jesus. They're still following Jesus. But they've lost their zeal. And he says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For those of you that are married in the room, do, do you remember when you first fell in love with your wife or your husband? you remember what that was like? You just wanted to be with them all the time. There's nothing you wouldn't do for them. There's no sacrifice you wouldn't make. You just wanted to be together whenever you could be. I, I remember when I did grow up and leave school and get a car, I'd sit in Susan's driveway and we'd sit there talking till one o'clock in the morning. At the time... I was building and I'd have to be at work at six o'clock in the morning. I didn't leave a lot of time for sleep, but I didn't care. I just wanted to be with her. And the only reason I went home was because Susan's dad would wake up and start flicking the porch light on and off. And it was kind of Morse code for go home and get your hands off my daughter, you young punk. And I'd go home, but I didn't want to. No one needed to tell me, you know, we should have a date night or should write a letter or... But as time goes on, you actually got to decide to keep that love alive. You've actually got to make some choices. You've got to choose to learn one another's love language. You've got to choose to go on a date night. You've got to choose to express your love, even in the moments when you don't feel like it. It's a choice that you make. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church here. He says, I want you to repent and do the things you did at first. You know, I, uh, I stand here with a lot of couples when they begin their marriage relationship. They walk down, well, bride starts walking down the aisle, the groom's standing next to me and normally he's either a blubbering mess or his eyes just hanging out of his head as he watches his bride walk down the aisle. And you don't hear this, but when they get up here, I can hear it. 
They whisper into each other, I love you, you're so pretty, you're so gorgeous, so wonderful. And I kind of let that settle down for a moment and I get everyone to be seated. And I say to the groom, you're a lucky man. You have a beautiful bride. Never once has the groom stood there and said, ah, she'll do. (laughs) She's all right, I suppose. He's always blubbering and tongue hanging out, hungry for his bride. And when Jesus tries to help us understand. It's just a, it's a picture to help us understand the kind of intimacy he wants in relationship with us, which is the relationship he picks. He says, you're my bride. He says, church, you're my bride and I'm the bridegroom. I, I want to be in intimacy with you. He doesn't say, church, you're like my mother-in-law kind of handy to have around to mind the kids, but please give me a bit of space. He says, you're my pure, spotless bride. I want to be with you. Church in Ephesus, they're working hard. They're good doctrine, holding on to the truth. They're serving They're persevering through hardship. They haven't kicked their faith. But they'd lost their love. They'd forsaken their first love. Just think back to a minute of whenever you first loved God. It might have been two weeks ago. might have been two years ago. It might have been several decades ago. But you'll remember. Think back to when you first discovered that Jesus died for you and you made him Lord and Savior of your life. Or maybe if that happened when you were a very young child and and you can't really remember it, think back to when you were first filled with the Spirit. You you experienced the filling of God's Spirit in in your life and, 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 and God just came alive for you. What was it like? What did you do? What was that zeal like? Maybe you got all sorts of excuses why now you don't have that same love. Why now you don't have that same zeal. I'm busy. I'm a parent. I got responsibilities. I got a job. Maybe it's people have hurt me. Maybe it's the church has hurt me, which really means people have hurt me. Maybe you've just got distracted by too many things. Maybe you'd say it was just youthful zeal. I'm older now. Jesus doesn't leave room for any of these excuses. He simply says, you don't love me the way you used to. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I've been reflecting on that this week. I was, I was about, I got baptized when I was 13. And God did something in my life. But I had, a, I had an on-again, off-again relationship with Jesus and with Susan for about the next six years. At 19, a defining moment in my life, I just surrendered my life to Jesus. I can tell you exactly where I was, exactly what happened. I just said, I'm following you, Jesus world behind me, cross before me, I'm following you. 
I think back to those, that time at 19. What, what is it? I've got three W's. Might just trig something for you. Firstly, what did I do at first? I worshipped. I just wanted to worship. No one had to tell me to come here every week. I couldn't wait to be here. In fact, it was out of control. People had to tell me, don't come to every service and every life group and every... It was a different time. I just wanted to be with God's people. I wanted to serve alongside God's people. And I wanted to worship God in song in a way I'd never had in my entire life. Could only have been a work of the Spirit in my heart. Not a natural singer. I just want to ask you today, do you worship in the same way you did at first? Are you here every week just primed, ready to worship? It's one of the things I believe God's doing in the heart of the church right now. He's calling us to a new joy in praise, a new surrender in worship. Are you longing just to serve alongside other people? Let, let me just talk to online for a minute. You heard me say before that uh, we are making our online service an online campus a place where people connect, care for one another, get discipled, and we're heading down that track. And I want to encourage you, if you've really found a home online and you want to be part of that, you want to serve, you want to care, you want to disciple others, then that's awesome, and we're so looking forward to all that God's going to do. If you're online this morning and uh, you haven't worked out who Jesus is, you've got big questions to ask, but you love tuning in and just sort of checking things out, please keep doing that. Just keep doing that. Just keep turning up every week. Can I just talk to a group of people that maybe sitting at home in your pyjamas online has just become convenient and comfortable? And you're not serving. You're not really reaching out to care for others. I just wonder whether God might be saying to a group of people, it's time to return. It's time to return. It's time to worship. It's time to worship alongside God's people. And it's time to serve. It's one of the litmus tests of our, how our hearts go and our love for Jesus. You're just coming in here longing to worship, longing to worship him with your songs and longing to worship him in the way that you serve. Secondly, how are you living in God's word? Second W, worship, word. I remember 19, I just couldn't get enough of the Bible. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to read it. I wanted to feed off it. It's just, it was just coming alive to me for the first time in my entire life. I, I wonder if, and I've seen this temptation in my own life, all right? So I'm looking in the mirror as well. Fast forward five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. You get to the Bible, you get to your Bible reading for the day and you go, Either you go, I'm too busy, I'll miss it today and I'll do it tomorrow. Or you get to a passage you're about to read and you go, I've read this before. I've read it before, I'll just skim through it. I'll guarantee, if whoever cooks in your house serves up your favourite meal, I don't know whether it's steak and chips, seafood risotto, you know, lobster mornay, you know, I don't, it might be fish fingers and mash, I don't know, but it's your favourite meal and they put it in front of you, and you've had it many times before, that's how you know it's your favorite meal, I guarantee you're not going to say, oh, I've eaten that before. I don't think I'll eat today. None of you would do that. I wouldn't do that. Why would you do that with the Word of God? 
is God wanting to feed us to nourish our soul? If you read it before, read it again. Let God speak to you. You know, when I first came alive in God, I worshipped, I was in the Word, and lastly, and this has probably been my challenge this week, nobody could stop me witnessing for Jesus. I was in high schools, I was running youth groups, so I just uh, running life groups with non-believers in it, and I was just, a, I, I just remember just feeling so alive. I, I remember the night I just led a, a, a Bible study in the home of someone who wasn't a believer, with parents, kids, and a whole bunch of their friends. And a bunch of the kids had sort of started coming to one of our uh, youth groups, but pretty much the whole room were unbelievers. And I was just opening the word and explaining it to them. And I'll never forget driving home that night. I can tell you exactly where I was, Adderton Road, Carlingford, just sitting in my, I couldn't get all the way home. I'm just sitting in my car, just weeping, just eyes crying out saying, God, I want to do this for the rest of my life. God, I want to see whole families redeemed. I want to see whole families changed in Jesus' name. And that prayer has not left me for 30 years. But I've gotten busy doing other things. I've gotten distracted by other things. I was thinking, when's the last time I actually sat one-on-one? So I still see in groups a lot, men's breakfasts and stuff, helping people understand who Jesus is. But when's the last time I sat one-on-one and just explained who Jesus was. Nobody could stop me doing it when I first started following Jesus. Jesus says, I commend you for your hard work. I commend you for persevering through hardship. I commend you for holding on to the truth. And I believe he'd say those exact same things to this church. But you've forsaken your first love. He calls them to love him above all other things. And he says, if you do not repent, I'll actually come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He says, you're the lampstand, I give the light, but if you're not going to shine a light on love, even if you hold on to truth, even even if you work hard, even if you persevere through hardship, if you won't love, If you won't love me and you won't love people the way that I've called you to, one day that lampstand will be removed. So repent and do the things you did at first. Have you noticed how many reward cards we end up with in our pocket these days? These actually represent things that we love and they're convenient, so we accept them. We devote some of our life, some of our money to these things because we love these things, and they're convenient. You know, I've got a a club BCF rewards card because I love boating, camping, and fishing. I've got a Team Amart rewards card because I love sport. I've got a flybys, a Qantas, and a Velocity Frequent Flyer reward card because once upon a time in history, I loved flying to places. I uh, have a Koorong reward card because I love books about Jesus. 
the bloke and they give me a good discount when I got uh, that card. There's a little uh, discount there. Uh, I've got a Mimco Collective card and a Wallace Bishop Gold Card membership because I love buying romantic gifts for my beautiful bride and they give me a little discount, a little reward. I got a Jeans West card, a Just Jeans card because I love wearing jeans and blue shirts and they sell a lot of them. I have a Patty Moore's Meats Red Meat Rewards card because I love red meat. And they give me 5% off and I got a Pillow Talk Club Comfort member card and a linen lover's card because I'm a lover of linen. <laughs> we accept, we accept these cards and we devote some of our life, some of our money, some of our love, some of our time to them because they give us some rewards. And we can easily treat Jesus in exactly the same way. He's just kind of this added extra to conveniently slip into our lives because of the benefits that we receive. And so we devote some of our time, some of our money, some of our life, some of our love to him. But Jesus is not something we conveniently slip into our lives alongside everything else that we love. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the center of all things. He holds all things together. It's in him we live and we move and we have our being. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. And he is worthy of all of our worship. He is above all other things. There's a transcendence to our worship. But there's also an imminence that he invites us into. This isn't Jesus with a big stick in his hand saying, give me the glory I deserve. This is an invitation. Now Mary sits at Jesus' feet while Martha is distracted by many things. And Martha's getting grumpy and Jesus says, only one of about four or five times in scripture, Jesus uses a double. Martha, Martha, verily, verily, truly, truly. Really make a point. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about many things. But Mary's chosen what is better. She's sitting at my feet, enjoying my presence. You see, there's a transcendence to our worship and there's an imminence to our worship. We're called, like Mary, just to sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy his presence. When Jesus asks what's the most important thing in life, he says, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others in the same way. That's why Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, all these other things you're doing are great, but love me, just love me. It's the most important thing. Love people. It's the next most important thing. I wonder if Jesus is saying to our church today, I commend you for your hard work. I commend you for persevering through hardship. I commend you for holding on to the truth. But don't forsake your first love. It's all about me. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know. 